सहनावतो सहनौ सह वीकवाहै तेजस्वीनावधीतमस्तुमाषावै ओ As we were discussing this morning in the second and the third chapters Lord Krishna taught two things one is what should be the real perception in life what the true knowledge is and as much as there is ignorance in our life we are born ignorant well we know that when we are born we are just totally born ignorant we don't know anything however this ignorance we are born of born ignorant of the world as well as of ourselves now this ignorance of the self is not just not knowing the self but ignorance of the self is knowing myself wrongly so it is not that i do not know myself it is do not know that it's not that i do not experience myself i know myself but i know it i know myself wrongly just as in the rope snake example that what is lying in front of me is a piece of rope and i see that there is a snake so not knowing the rope as a rope is one thing if you did not see the rope at all maybe it would have been okay if you saw the rope as a rope no problem but i do not see the object as a rope i see that as a snake the reasons because there is not enough light maybe there is some defect in my eyes for what reasons i see the object as a snake and then it causes fear in me if i had not seen anything there at all there would have been no fear if i had seen the object as rope also there would have been no fear but when i see what is rope as snake then the fear arises and perhaps i may want to uh, run away from there which is unwarranted someone who sees someone who knows that what is lying in front of there in front is a rope when he sees that person sees me walking up to that rope all of a sudden stopping frozen with fear looking around and running away then he doesn't understand what's happening to me so why are you running away why are you scared why are you afraid just as lord krishna arjuna why are you grieving what's the problem so we may think that lord krishna is not sympathetic at all to arjuna but that is not so lord krishna sees something that arjuna does not see just as a person who knows that there's a rope there 
he sees that object as a rope, therefore he's quite surprised at my reaction to this. But in my perception it's a snake. And therefore, in my mind there is enough justification for whatever is happening to me. Similarly also one who knows the true nature of the self as self, the consciousness. As we say, that is immortal, free from birth and death, free from changes, and therefore free from any limitations, which is the reality of myself. It is hard to believe that the I is limitless because everything is so limited. This body is so small, my mind also is so small, in such a small in body and mind. How can the self be big or limitless? The thing is, just as an electric bulb may be very small, maybe 25 watt bulb, and therefore the light radiating from that bulb also is very limited. And still, the electricity expressing or manifesting through that bulb is several thousand volts, you know. And so also, even though this body is mortal, is limited, the self which is manifesting through this limited mortal body is immortal. The self manifesting through this limited body is limitless. And this is what Vedanta teaches us. <clears throat> However, as we said, we are born ignorant of the true nature of ourselves. As a result, not only I do not know that limitlessness is my nature, but I take myself to be a limited being. This is a problem. Not only do I not know that object is rope, but I take it to be a snake, which is the problem is. And so also, not only do I not know that limitlessness is my nature, that I am ever free, that I am immortal. Not, but not only I do not know that, but I take myself to be mortal, bound, limited. As we say, wherever I see myself as limited, bound, mortal, helpless, I am, I become very unhappy. <coughs> Thus, we have, we have what we call the false perception of the self. The ignorance here, ignorance of self, is not just not knowing the self, but it is wrongly knowing the self. Just as in the case of rope snake, it is not just not knowing the rope, but then wrongly knowing the rope as snake, which is what causes fear and other reactions. And so also, taking myself to be, perceiving myself to be a limited, bound, helpless creature, I become very sad or unhappy. <clears throat> and that is why the whole teaching became necessary. That's why the teaching is necessary. It required for Arjuna the condition of a battlefield. For him to realize that, he needs to know something. In, in life of most people, this kind of situation does not occur. They keep living the life, 
they are born and they die, doing the normal things. But in case of somebody, it happens that the cause of my sorrow or sadness is not just something ordinary, it's something more deep, something very fundamental, and that it needs a fundamental solution, then he approaches the teacher seeking the knowledge. <coughs> Therefore, as we said, Lord Krishna imparted the knowledge. Taught Arjuna, understand that, in fact, you have no birth, there is no death, you are immortal. And knowing that, you become free from all sorrow. Not only become free from sorrow, in fact, you discover that ananda, happiness or wholeness is your nature. <coughs> then, Lord Krishna also taught another aspect. As we said again in the morning again, that this knowledge can be gained only when we have a mind which is prepared to grasp this, which is prepared to see this fact about myself. And some people may be very fortunate that they may be born possessed of this mind, like Adi Shankaraja himself. Some great saints also are born because as we said, this spiritual pursuit is not beginning with only one life. I mean, it, is not, it did not begin with my birth. It is an ongoing process. We have been doing this for God knows how many births. And thus, each one of us is born with some amount of maturity, with some amount of spiritual growth. Each one may be at a different stage, but each one brings something with them. And that's why all who are here are here. It's not just an accident. You know, Swami, my parents brought me. That's okay, but still, there must be something in it that one is exposed to this place and this teaching is something very great. And thus, each one is, of course, born with some preparation. But for most of us, further preparation is required. And that preparation, Lord Krishna calls Karma Yoga, living life of yoga. Wherein we live essentially same kind of life, do essentially same kind of things, but then now the life is based on a new perception and therefore new priorities and new values. As we discussed in the morning, the primary value for an ignorant person, not only ignorant, but for a non-discerning person, a non-discriminating person. The conclusion is that more I possess, more successful I am. More I consume, happier I am. This is the general perception. And therefore we see an ordinary person living his life simply chasing one goal after the other, achieving one material end after the other, hoping that this is how he will become successful. As we said, if you live a life based on the perception that I am a needy person, I am basically an insecure person, I am basically 
and a, a small person, then whatever I do only perpetuates that insecurity, perpetuates the smallness. In the you would say that the person becomes from unknown to well-known, from poor to wealthy, from powerless to powerful, and still the fact that he is miserable, that does not change. Formerly he was uncomfortably miserable, and now he is comfortably miserable. And therefore, from uncomfortable, one can become comfortable. From being unknown, one can become well-known. From being poor, one can become wealthy. From powerless, one can become powerful. All these changes are possible. But as long as these changes are pursued, on the assumption that I am needy, and therefore all these achievements are merely means of gratification of my ego, then I remain as miserable as before. There is, as we said, nothing wrong in being wealthy, nothing wrong in being powerful, nothing wrong in being famous, all the achievements in themselves are, are all right. But the purpose for which in fact those achievements are, that is what is important. If the purpose of these achievements is merely to satisfy or gratify my ego, then we say they cannot release me from a sense of insecurity. Lord Krishna says that, may you pursue the goals in your life, not as a means of gratification of ego, but as a means of gratification of Ishwara, gratification of Lord. With an Ishwara, as we say in the morning, Ishwara, God, is manifest as His universe before us. He is all-pervasive. He is the self of all. And He is the one who prompts he is the very consciousness, the very intelligence, which is the source of all the activities, all the movements. That's what in fact runs the whole creation. So that which is the source of all the action, from whom the creation, sustenance, dissolution takes place, who is the indwelling self or the ruler or the controller, and thus who controls the entire universe which, because of which the whole universe is functioning in an order, may you perform your actions as an offering to Lord such as that. Meaning, may you make your life a process not of gratifying your ego, but gratification of Ishwara. Not one of consuming, but one of contributing. From a consumer, we will become a contributor. Of course, for contribution also, I require things. Therefore, I do require all these material things, such as wealth and power. Then alone I can contribute something. But now, so people ask this question. Swamiji, if as you say, this wealth and power and name and fame will not make me happy or successful, then what's the use of them? The use is that I can be a better contributor. Because for helping or serving also, I do require the resources. 
And therefore, now a karma yogi employs his resources in terms of his intelligence and capacities and talents to produce maximum that he can so that he can also contribute maximum. Thus the whole the whole spirit changes from one of acquiring and consuming to one of creating and offering. In short, I mean short briefly we can say this is life of yoga or karma yoga. As we point out in the morning, because the whole universe also functions in the spirit of sacrifice or offering. Except human being who has a free will. And therefore, he has the freedom of abusing the will also. Thus he has the freedom not to join the scheme of things. If you observe the scheme of things, it becomes very clear. That every little thing beginning from atom, all the way up to galaxies and all the elements of nature, all of them function in harmony, in cooperation with each other. Not in competition, but in cooperation. And therefore, ideally, human being also, being a part of creation, should also act in the spirit of cooperation, in the spirit of, as we say, self-offering. <coughs> that would be the life which is in keeping with the obtaining order. Then there is harmony between myself and the universe. There is harmony without and harmony within. And this is how this whole process of yoga is conducive to making or bringing nothing but peace in our mind. And that is how person becomes happy. He becomes free from misery or sorrow. Not because of what he has, but because of what he is. What he has is secondary because what he is, is that he is a devotee of the Lord. He is a contributor. He is the one who offers. It is that spirit which in fact releases him from the self-centeredness and the likes and dislikes caused by that. Thus he progressively becomes free from his impulses of attachment and aversion. This is called process of purification of mind. And therefore, we do require this purification of mind to be able to gain this knowledge and gain an abundance in the knowledge. Without purity of mind, we cannot even gain the knowledge. But in case somebody does, without that purity, one cannot really abide in the knowledge. And what we mean by knowledge is when it becomes spontaneous. As spontaneously today, I behave as a human being, effortlessly. So effortlessly when I behave as I am Brahman, then that is called, that would be called knowledge. That would, that is a liberating knowledge. And this is what they, this is what we call Jnana Nishta, abiding knowledge. Thus in Bhagavad Gita, basically Lord Krishna is teaching this yoga, what we call yoga of knowledge, or yoga characterized by abiding in my true nature. Meaning really being what I truly am. Right now, even though my life may look like it is spontaneous, it is not. It is only habitual. What is meant by spontaneous is when I truly act as I am. Just as the water is hot and it is not comfortable because 
it is not its nature. When water becomes cold, and then it abides in its nature. Or, as long as a river is separated from the ocean, so long it is never comfortable. When the river meets with the ocean, ocean being its own source, ocean being its own nature, then river is totally at peace, totally comfortable. The reason why I am not comfortable with myself is because I am not living a life which is true to my nature. This yoga helps me to become progressively closer and closer to my nature and ultimately it culminates in being what I truly am. And what am I? As we said, that ananda or wholeness or completeness is my nature. Therefore, when I function as a complete being, I function as the one who is free from all the needs that Lord Krishna described. Prajahati yada kamaan sarvan par samanogatan atmanye vatmanatushtaha siddha pragnistadavchade. When one has become totally free from all the needs and all the demands, one sees no need now to make any demands upon anybody for his comfort. Because he has discovered the comfort as his own self. He has no need now to seek any means of happiness because he has discovered happiness as his own self. He has no need now to seek anything for feeling comfortable or secure because he has discovered security as his own nature. Now he lives freely as a person who is secure by himself who is happy by himself, who is free by himself. This is called freedom when he is no more dependent upon anything else for being happy or free or comfortable. <clears throat> this is what would be what we call liber liberation or moksha. So moksha or liberation, as Vedanta teaches, is not something to be associated with some different realm like heavens, etc. Not some, some different kind of a state that I am walking six inches above the earth or something. Or that I can walk in air or some such thing, which you may. But Vedanta's te teaching is very simple. It just be natural self. To be my natural self. Where I am totally at ease or comfortable with myself. And when I am comfortable with myself, I am also comfortable with everything else. My discomfort with the world basically shows my discomfort with myself. This is Jnana So this is what Lord Krishna teaches primarily that you must gain the knowledge of self and abiding knowledge. <clears throat> so Jnana or abidance in the knowledge is ultimate goal. And process of gaining that knowledge is called karma yoga or performing karma or performing action or living your life in the spirit of a devotee, in the devotee of Ishvara as a person whose life becomes a process of offering or yoga. So this is what Lord Krishna taught. What more needs to be taught? Lord Krishna taught what is the goal of life and what say? means of achieving that goal. That's what we need in our life. For living intelligently, this is what we need. 
Just as for driving intelligently, you need to know what your destination is and what's the path leading to destination. Then you can make the right choices at every, at every intersection. And so also when we are very clear as to what we are seeking in our life and what's the way of achieving that goal, then at every turn we can make the right choices. So you, what do you mean by choices? Is it a choice between rice and, 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 and chapati? Is a choice between orange and apple? It's not that choice. Is a choice between being a consumer or being a contributor. That choice presents itself before us at every stage, in every situation. Whether I use a given situation for my personal benefit or I use that situation as an opportunity to be to be a servant, to be a contributor. That's what we mean by the primary choice. And if you are if you are alert, you'll find that in every situation, while walking, talking, eating, whatever you are doing, in every situation that kind of a choice is available. If we are discerning, if we pay attention as we say to the process of our mind then we'll be able to see, well, mind, as we said, by habit, is always manipulating and calculating for its personal gain. That is in the habit of the mind. And we have to deliberately change its habit. So, Lord Krishna taught this. And thinking that whatever was necessary to teach has been taught. In fact, Adi Shankaraja tells us that not only Bhagavad Gita teaches this, the entire Vedas teach this only. Vedas are the original source books. And Bhagavad Gita also would gain its authenticity because the teaching of Bhagavad Gita also is based on the teaching of the Vedas. And Vedas also basically teach these two things. First stage is the life of action, life of activity, life of engagement called Karma Yoga. And second stage is life of contemplation, which is called the Jnana Yoga. Thus the Karma Kanda portion of the Vedas, the ritualistic portion of the Vedas, teaches us how to live the life of activity, basically the life of a householder. In the Upanishad, the Jnana Kanda or the section dealing with knowledge in the Vedas teaches us how to live the life of contemplation, basically the life of renunciate. <coughs> These are the two lifestyles which is what Bhagavad Gita also teaches. And so not only Lord Krishna is conveyed to Arjuna what Bhagavad Gita says but what the entire Veda says, all the scriptures have to say. Lord Krishna is satisfied that he has told Arjuna what needs to be told. And therefore, thinking that now the teaching is complete, Lord Krishna is winding up. As we say, the fourth chapter opens with the statement of Lord Krishna. Otherwise, see, there must be always a reason why you say something. Lord Krishna would not say something unless it was necessary to say it. So far, Lord Krishna was giving discourse because Arjuna asked him questions. Arjuna 
express a desire to know in response to that Lord Krishna said what he said. But the fourth chapter does not open with a question by Arjuna. In which case we have justification as to why the fourth chapter is there. But without Arjuna asking any question, Lord Krishna himself makes statements. The first three verses are told. Why should, why should Lord Krishna do that? Because in his opinion, he was simply concluding his discourse. And in the fourth verse of this fourth chapter, had Arjuna not asked the question that he does, the Gita would have been concluded here. In which case, we have three chapters of Gita and the first three verses of the fourth chapter. That's it. So how, what is the reason why Lord Krishna says what he does say? He is concluding. How is he, how does he conclude? Here, the, the Lord Krishna wants to emphasize. The Arjuna, look, what I have told you today, the teaching that I have imparted you today is authentic. So Lord Krishna wants to emphasize that this is an authentic teaching. And how do you establish authenticity of something? In the Vedic tradition, in the tradition of Veda or in India, in India as we said, a thing becomes authentic only when it has its source in the Vedas. If what Lord Krishna taught Arjuna today was something that he had conceived, some new tradition he had started, some new religion he had founded, and he said something that was the figment of his own imagination, then typically in India that would not be accepted. Indians only accept things which are authentic, meaning that which have their source in the Vedas. Why is it so? Because Vedas are looked upon as revealed scriptures. So Vedas, I mean every tradition believes of course that their scriptures are revealed, which is fine. But that the Vedas are revealed scriptures. The mantra of the Vedas are not written by anybody. Although for every mantra or every, you know, every passage of the Veda, we have what we call a rushi. Rushi means a seer. We have the chanda, the Buddha meter. We have devata, the presiding deity for every mantra. And so people may think that these mantras were written by those respective sages. For example, the famous Gayatri mantra. Who is the rushi, you know? The rushi is sage Vishwamitra. Who is the presiding deity of that? Who is the Devata? Surya, Aditya, Savita is the Devata. And what's the meter? Gayatri is the meter. So really that mantra is Savitri mantra because it is a mantra which is a prayer and you know to Savita or Lord Son. But it has become famous as Gayatri mantra because Gayatri is the chanda, so the meter in which that mantra is. Java mantra is found. 
is not that sage Vishwamitra wrote that mantra. It is that that mantra was revealed to him. And therefore, we say that mantras of the Vedas are revealed to the sages. The sages or rishis are the seers of mantras and not the writers of mantras. Because any anything that is composed or written by a human being is always going to be limited by the limitations of the human intellect. Human intellect may be great and still it has many limitations. First of all, ignorance is the first limitation. Doubt is another limitation. Also, inadequacy of the means of knowledge. Because our knowledge ultimately is gathered from the information that we gain through our organs of perception and through the mind, which are very limited also. And sometimes, the human mind has a t- habit of taking, thinking that I know everything. Sometimes, what is wrong is taken to be right. So all these different defects are possible in human intellect. And therefore, whatever a human being writes or composes is always subject to correction, subject to improvement, subject to be, subject to be proven false. And therefore, whatever a human being composes is called smruti, not, and not shruti, so Shruti of the Vedas, as we said, are revelations and therefore we say that they are revealed by God or Ishvara who is omniscient and therefore free from all these defects or limitations of the intellect because it is all-knowing. And therefore what the Vedas reveal in terms of the reality of life is taken as authentic knowledge. That Bhagavad Gita would become authentic only when the teaching of Bhagavad Gita also has its source in Vedas. If Gita was written by Lord Krishna, then perhaps we would suspect that Gita also has the limitations of the intellect. Understand that Gita is not written by Lord Krishna. In fact, Gita was not something that the Lord Krishna thought of earlier. It is something that emerged from Lord Krishna. That's what traditionally we say that Gita emerged from the lips of Lord Krishna. And therefore it is also a spontaneous revelation. And it teaches the same thing that the Vedas have taught. And therefore the knowledge imparted in Bhagavad Gita is authentic. Therefore, it is trustworthy. Because only when we trust something in our mind, then alone we can make a wholehearted effort to put that in our life. You sometimes when you are lost in traveling, you you don't know which road is leading to where you want to go, sometimes you stop and ask a passerby, where is this certain, you know, where is the route leading, leading to, uh, you know, such some place in New Jersey, Masking Ridge, New Jersey, how do you go there? 
that fellow just take this, this. But looking at his face, you, you suspect that perhaps he doesn't know what he's talking about. And sometimes they don't even know. Here, sometimes in India they will tell you, go this way, you know, straight, this often. And you may be taken for a ride. So when a person says, you suddenly observe the person and say, I don't think he knows, let us ask somebody else. You know. Sometimes asking two, three persons and getting different replies from all of them until we go to a gas station. And sometimes we not even depend upon gas station fellow, give, us, give me a map, let me look at it myself. Because when we do not have the trust in the words of the person who is telling us then, we cannot wholeheartedly pursue that. Even if I take the road that this fellow has suggested, take certain such exit and so forth, but I'm always wondering whether this is so or not, and so I take a few rounds and come back and I realize that, no, that's not right. And therefore, it is important for us to know that the Teaching of Bhagavad Gita is trustworthy. There must be trust or Shraddha. So Shraddha, Shraddha means an implicit faith, is very very important in pursuit of knowledge. In this chapter itself, Lord Krishna will say, Shraddhavan lavate jnanam. One way Shraddha, or one way is trust, he gains the knowledge. So we should have Shraddha, or implicit faith in the words of Lord Krishna in the passages of Bhagavad Gita. If we in, our, in, in the corner of our mind, we were suspecting the authenticity of this teaching, then anytime things do not go right, then I will question this teaching. As long as things are okay, so long fine. But suppose, following the path that Lord Krishna teaches does not yield the kind of results that I am expecting, then I would suspect that I think there is some problem there. Because difficulties do come, obstacles do come, and therefore it is not that the journey is always smooth, it is not that we always get the desired results, and therefore we are likely to be discouraged. And out of discouragement, we will reject that very thing, you know. We will reject Bhagavad Gita. I don't think that what they are saying is right. But if I had the implicit faith that no, that is right, then I would have the incentive and motivation to overcome the obstacles and persist on the path that persistence becomes very important. We need to persist. We need not to get discouraged. We need not to get, not to lose heart. Therefore, in the sixth chapter, at one point, Lord Krishna says, Sanishchena yoktavyaha yogaha anirvanya chedasa. Here, Arjuna, you should pursue this path of spiritual growth without being discouraged or without being depressed. Because Lord Krishna knows that a person is likely to be discouraged. In spite of making efforts also, sometimes when you do not get the kind of result that we expect, then we become discouraged and we might drop the whole thing. So Lord Krishna says, do not do that. Pursue it with a conviction. 
So that conviction to pursue something on the face of obstacles can be there only where in my mind there is an implicit trust that what is being said here is trustworthy, is authentic. Therefore, trust is very important. And the trust can be created in us two ways. This is two things Lord Krishna says in the beginning of the fourth chapter, meaning concluding his discourse. Two things Lord Krishna says. One, he says that the knowledge imparted to Arjuna today is authentic in as much as it has its source in the Vedas and that it is coming down to us through an authentic sequence of the teachers and the disciples. There is succession. This is what we call a parampara or a succession from the teacher to the disciple and that, that succession has its origin right in the Vedas or in the beginning of creation, in Ishvara. And secondly, Lord Krishna says that I am God. He himself declares that I am not an ordinary human being. In fact, I am God in this particular form. Thus, these two things are being told by Lord Krishna that the knowledge, the teaching imparted to Arjuna so far in the first, in the second and third, last two chapters is, has its source in the Veda and is coming down to us through an unbroken, let us say, succession of the teachers and the students. And hence it is authentic. And secondly, the one who is imparting the knowledge of Gita himself is authentic because he is none other than God. Meaning that he is omniscient, all-knowing. These two things are being told in order to create the Shraddha or the trust in us. And with that, as we said, Lord Krishna wanted to conclude the teaching. So, let us read the first verse. I will recite one quarter of the verse and you please repeat after me. Shri Bhagavan Uvacha Imam Vivasvate Yogam Proktavanaham Avyayam Vivasvan Manave Praha Manurikshwakave Bravir Imam Yogam, Imam Avyaya Yogam, Aham Vivasvade Proktavan. Lord Krishna says, this Avyayam Yogam, this imperishable yoga, Avyayam, imperishable yoga. What is yoga? Yoga here means the knowledge that has been imparted to Arjuna. Here Arjuna, this knowledge, consisting of the and as well as a means. What's end? That what is end? As we said, an abidance in the true nature of ourselves. What in Vedanta they would call jnana an abiding knowledge of the self. And for that, the means was yoga, karma yoga. 
The first step is karma yoga. Second step is jnana yoga. First step is the life of karma or action. Second is the life of pursuit of knowledge or contemplation. This yoga, meaning this knowledge, which is of them, Lord Krishna qualifies this yoga. This knowledge is avyayam, imperishable. He was imperishable about the knowledge. <clears throat> it is knowledge imperishable for two reasons. One is that it has its source in Vedas which are imperishable. This is another belief. That Vedas are not created, they are revealed. And Vedas have no beginning and no end, meaning that they are always there. This morning, many of you listened to this priest doing a lot of Vedic chanting. And some of them were highly impressed at the very energy created and, and, and you know the, the amount of amount of knowledge that these people have and they for hours and hours together kept on reciting things. Where does it all come from? As I said, this is only a fraction of what they know. So what we heard in the morning is only what was necessary to perform this ceremony. But these priests can perform any number of different kinds of ceremonies and can decide any other number of texts. All of these texts, these are all these mantras of the Vedas. Where are they? How is it that they were revealed to the rishis or sages? Traditionally it is said that the mantras are always there in a very subtle form and if a sage or a rishi tunes up to that mantra because of his power of penance, because of the purity of his mind, because of this focus or concentration, when a rishi or a sage tunes up to that mantra, then he sees the mantra. We know that knowledge is always there. Knowledge is never created. Knowledge is always there. Knowledge is imperishable. For example, we can look upon Newton as a sage. And as a result of contemplation and deliberation for a number of years, that he observe one simple phenomenon of an apple falling perhaps on his nose or on his you know, face. Someone like you and I might have perhaps say, hey, this is you know, this is a ripe apple, because it fell by itself. It must be very delicious. I would have proceeded to conceal it. That's, that's where it would end it. But in case of Newton, it did not end there. His question was, why did this apple fall? This question will not arise in everybody's mind. It requires certain kind of mind for the question to arise. You see, world is the same. All of us perceive the same world and you know experience the same things. But what we experience creates different kind of responses or triggers different things in different people. And to a sage such as Newton, this phenomenon of falling the apple triggered this question, why did the apple fall? Apples were always falling. I'm sure millions of people always saw apples falling before Newton. 
But perhaps this question never occurred to anybody. And not only the question occurred, but then he pursued that to investigate what is the cause. And after many years of deliberating, he came up with this understanding, knowledge that there is something called, called the, the, the pull of gravity. It is because of the gravity that the apple fell. And he came up with an understanding and various laws known as laws of Newton. We cannot say that these laws were created, although we call them the laws of Newton. It is not that Newton created them. It is not that the law of gravity did not exist before Newton discovered it. It always existed. Then how did Newton come to know about it? By his contemplation, what we call his penance. His mind tuned up to that knowledge of what we call the law of gravity and he saw it in his mind. Therefore, all knowledge is revealed really. Not only Vedic knowledge, all knowledge is revealed. It becomes revealed whenever the person becomes tuned up to that frequency and wavelength. So you can say this law of gravity is a mantra, which is revealed to Newton. When he got tuned up to that whatever that frequency or wavelength is. And so did Einstein, all scientists, and many other people. We would call them sages, really. They're all rishis. Not only students of science, but other branches of knowledge as well. The point here is that knowledge is always there. Knowledge is never created, understand that. Therefore, knowledge is imperishable. Whatever is created is subject to being destroyed. But what is not created cannot be destroyed also. Therefore, this knowledge that you are Brahman, you are limitless, is imperishable. Even if the whole earth comes to an end, the whole world comes to an end, this knowledge will remain, this reality will remain. That in all the diversity there is unity. There is one cell that informs all these living beings, that all names and forms, that fact will remain. So there is one order that in fact informs the entire universe, that, that will always remain. So when a new universe is created, then they will discover that also. Therefore, knowledge is not created and therefore not subject to destruction, it is imperishable. So Lord Krishna says, this imperishable knowledge, and traditionally you can call it imperishable because it has its source in the Vedas. The Vedas are imperishable and therefore the knowledge revealed by the Vedas also is imperishable inasmuch as in Bhagavad Gita Lord Krishna imparts the same teaching as in the Vedas. Therefore this teaching also is imperishable. So Lord Avyayam Yogam therefore the imperishable yoga. Another reason also why we can say that this knowledge is imperishable. Because it produces a result which is imperishable. What's the result of this knowledge? As a result of knowing that I am limitless, knowing that I am Brahman, knowing that I am whole and complete being, what does this knowledge do? 
Does it produce anything new? Knowledge never produces anything. Knowledge only reveals what is. Just as light does not produce anything, light simply dispels the darkness. And therefore, we come to know of things which were already there. If there is darkness in this hall, then you may not see the furniture which is lying here. When somebody switches on the light, then it is not that light created all the furniture that you see. It was there, but because of darkness, you could not see what was already there, and what the light does is simply dispels the darkness and brings to manifestation what is. And so also, knowledge simply dispels the darkness of ignorance and brings to manifestation what is. What is? What is that? That I, the self, or I, is limitless. And thus, it produces results in the form of, as I said, my abiding in my true nature. But Swamiji, can this knowledge go away or not? Is it possible that you forget this knowledge? It is not possible because I cannot forget myself. I can forget. See, forgetting can be there as long as it is something other than myself. But the fact that I am can never be forgotten. Because it's self-effulgent. Therefore, that I am limitless is a self-effulgent fact. And therefore, it is imperishable in terms of the result also. Does this knowledge is imperishable in terms of the source and eh? because the source of the Vedas or the knowledge is never created and secondly this knowledge gives rise to an outcome result which is moksha or liberation which also is an abiding fact once liberated you cannot be bound again the darkness when once goes away cannot stay to come back The darkness that goes away cannot stay a comic Swami, it does. Why this hall will become dark at night? But what I am saying is that suppose there is a cave in which there has been darkness for centuries together. You light a can you light a candle and the darkness goes away. As long as the candle is, so long darkness cannot come. Darkness cannot come when the light is. And so also, ignorance cannot come when the knowledge is. Inasmuch as knowledge is my own self, therefore is indestructible. Therefore, the ignorance cannot stay to come back. And therefore, the result also is imperishable. The knowledge is imperishable, and the moksha or liberation, the knowledge use also is imperishable. Therefore, Lord Krishna qualifies this yoga or the knowledge by calling it avyayam, meaning imperishable. This imperishable yoga, this imperishable knowledge. Aham Proktavan, Lord Krishna says that I told this knowledge. To whom? Vivasvate. To Vivaswan. Vivaswan means son, S-U-N son. So this has its you see, what Bhagavad Gita teaches is universal, but then 
the background in which the teaching takes place is definitely Vedic. So, Vivaswan means we have to know some kind of Vedic tradition, so or the descriptions. Where it is said that in the creation, the first one is Vivaswan or Surya or Sun or Hiranyagarbha or Brahmaji or Creator. He is the first one. And from then Hiranyagarbha or Brahma is born Manu, that's the first human being. So sometimes children are asked, hey, our Bible says that Adam was the first man, according to who was the first man? <laughs> our children, because we don't bother about this kind of things anyway. But still, so somebody asked me, for many ways, well I said, Manu is the very first being, first man. Therefore we are called Manava or Manushyas. The progeny of Manu are called Manava or human beings. <coughs> so Vivaswan is the creator. He first manifests. And then Vivaswan, the son of Vivaswan, the first born human being is Manu. So it is described in Puranas. And son of Manu is Ikshvago. And that's how there is what we call a whole lineage. A royal lineage, beginning from Ikshvaku. This is what we call the solar dynasty. In the in the Indian tradition, we find these two dynasties: solar dynasty and lunar dynasty. What is solar dynasty? The dynasty which has its origin in sun. What is lunar dynasty? The dynasty which has its origin in moon who are the most predominant outstanding people in these two dynasties, you know. So Lord Rama belonged to the solar dynasty. Lord Krishna belonged to the lunar dynasty. Just for your information. Therefore you can see their personalities also are different. Sun is always bright and scorching. Sun also of course dispels darkness, but also is scorching. Moon dispels darkness as well as is pleasing. So Lord Rama is of course God, no doubt, but always devoted to dharma, righteousness. And so in his life you find a certain stiffness, austerities, penance. In life of Lord Krishna, you find always joy and, and you know, freedom, joy, because he is in the lunar dynasty. The moon is very pleasant. That's how you see the description of Lord Krishna as someone who is very pleasant, who creates joy wherever he is. Not that Lord Rama does not, you know, create joy, but still, solar and lunar. So, here Lord Krishna says that, in the beginning of the creation, I imparted this knowledge to Vivaswan or Aditya or Sun. Vivaswan Manave Praha, Vivaswan the Sun, imparted that knowledge to his son, Manu. Manu Ikshvakeva Bravet and Manu in turn imparted the same knowledge to his son who is Ikshvaku. The name of Ikshvaku is mentioned because the dynasty also is called Ikshvaku dynasty in which great, very, you know, very prominent and very brave and valorous kings were born. And there were Ikshvaku, the very well-known king.
As I said, these names are not very important names because uh, important is that this knowledge, Lord Krishna says, I imparted in the beginning of creation. <coughs> what it means will continue our discussion tomorrow. Om Purnamadaf Purnamidam Purnat Purnamudachare Purnasya Purnamadaya Purnameva Vashishyare Om Shanti 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 Shankaram Shankaracharyam Keshavam Badarayanam Sutra Bhashya Krutavande Bhagavanta Punapunaham Ishvaro Guru Ratmedi Murti Veda Vibhagine Yapta Dehaya Dakshina Murtaye Namaha Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Shri Guru Bhyo Namaha Hari Om